Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. All right, we are back with episode 14 and Dr. Marsha Reynolds, and she just has some pretty staggering credentials. I think of her as kind of like the queen of the coaches in terms of executive coaching, and she really has that warmth and intuition and emotional kind of wisdom you'll really hear come through. So I I enjoyed hearing from her, and I think that you will too, and take away some really useful tidbits, including one a dramatic exchange in prison that altered Marsha's life trajectory and made me cry. It's true. It happened. I teared up in the actual interview for the first time. Two, some key coaching questions that make people stop, think, and become open to change. And three, the four steps to change your emotional state at will. A bit about Marsha. Dr. Marsha Reynolds coaches, teaches, and presents at conferences worldwide on leadership, emotional intelligence, and personal success. She's the author of three award-winning books, The Discomfort Zone, Wonder Woman, and outsmart your brain. Her doctorate is in organizational psychology with an emphasis on the challenges and needs of high achievers in the workplace. Oh, that's you. She's overcome many roadblocks and detours in life, which makes her writing and teaching personal, practical, and inspirational. To read the transcripts and check out the things mentioned here, of course, you can drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep14. Here's Marsha. Marsha, thanks so much for appearing on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks, Pete. I really appreciate being here. Well, you've got so much great stuff to share, and I'm really looking forward to to jumping right in. But I'm quite intrigued. So you've got your doctorate in organizational psychology, and you have figured out some, some key insights associated with overcoming challenges and needs of high achievers. And in the process of getting that wisdom, you say lots of that came from overcoming many of, of your own roadblocks and detours. I'm very intrigued. Could you share a little bit about that first? Okay. I'm going to um, give a little bit of the journey and then go backwards a little. Okay. First, the the whole concept of really trying to understand uh, challenges and needs of high achievers actually comes from, of course, facing my own and thinking something was wrong with me and I was weird. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I, um, you know, started my career down one path and like many people, uh, fell into another. You know, I started my first master's was broadcasting. I got a job at a, a psychiatric hospital. Oh wow! Um, um, pushing televisions around, <laughs> and um, uh, it was for the training department. And my boss decided to go get her doctorate and dump the whole department in my lap. And I became a trainer and went on and got another degree in instructional design. So it was sort of was accidental, but I found that. You know, about every three years, I would start getting kind of antsy. What's next? What else is there? And by five years, I was gone. So it was, I moved across industries. I, you know, always took on things. I didn't know anything about it. And I learned along the way because I think I learned you just say yes, you jump into it and you do it. But when I finally jumped out and started my own business, and decided to go get my doctorate because I was really interested in the brain and why we do what we do. And and when I went to do my, my dissertation, you know, it, that's a tough choice because you have to find something that you can finish in this lifetime. And that's and, somewhat original. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you have to do a review of the literature. And with the Internet, reviewing all the literature out there on a topic 
can take your lifetime, you know? So um, I actually was looking, I was listening to somebody talk at a conference and he was explaining women in the workplace. And I'm like, oh, that's not true at all. That was so old fashioned what he was thinking. And it wasn't uh, at all like me or my clients. And so I went out and I said, you know, so let me look at the literature. What are they writing about smart, strong women in the workplace? And at that point, which was only 2008 when I started this research, it wasn't that long ago, there still wasn't anything out there. It was all about women who were passive and wouldn't speak up for themselves or wouldn't lean in. And uh-huh. I was like, what about the rest of us? So when I started doing the research and talking and interviewing these uh, women all around the country, I found that there were many uh, women like me that had this restlessness and were often we were often misinterpreted, our intentions and... Um, and then I found that many of these same challenges uh, that men had, the younger men coming into the workplace, that they were also, uh, you know, uh, job hoppers and misunderstood. And so that's when I, uh, I wrote my, my dissertation, and that turned into a book, Wander Woman. Oh, yes, and Wander had, Woman with the A. Yeah, uh-huh. and again, and many men that have read it that said, um, yes, yes, that's me too. So it's really all about what we face. We smart, strong uh, people in the workplace that uh, seem to be wholly misunderstood. <laughs> well, indeed. And, and that's some interesting areas there. You know, one area of your history I'd like to zoom in a little bit is, can we hear a little bit about the story of a semiconductor company that was near bankruptcy. You were in charge of the employee development program, and then it went off to have a fantastically successful IPO. I'm curious, to what extent was your training program a key enabler of that, and mm-hmm. and, and what made it so fantastic? Well, I think I what made it so fantastic was because I learned what not just what to do, but what not to do. Because the company prior to that that I work for was a um, world-renowned company. They, they were the top in the world for dumb terminals attached to mainframes. And when we shifted into smart technology, they couldn't make the shift because mm. nobody talked to each other. Everybody was in their silos. Uh, everybody thought they were right. And it was just uh, difficult um, to make changes. There was no flexibility in the workplace. I watched that company go down. Um, and they were sold twice. And I was in charge of sales training at the time. And our products were awful. <laughs> okay. And they tried to do teams, but nobody liked each other. So um, I left in two years, they went bankrupt. My next job was this company that was near bankruptcy. And they said, here's a bunch of money, go do whatever it is you do. Oh. Well, I got alliances in the company, which is so important. I had some champions um, in management. And um, they changed the product in the market, but we changed the organizational into to cross-functional business units um, and really worked with everyone to uh, work together as teams, how to uh, deal with conflict, manage stress. And so, yeah, m- many of the programs, not just the training, but how we implemented the programs led to the success that three years later, we were the top IPO in the United States. So, yeah, that was a big deal. But again, I learned from the mistakes of what not to do that I was able to then determine what to do in order to make that work. And within those 
uh, programs and the implementation of the overall transformation, would you say that there were kind of any real particular shifts that just opened things wide up for them? It's like once they kind of got in their bones a core Mm -hmm. message or paradigm, things were really starting to cruise. And, And what were those? I think the main thing, when I said to you that these were cross-functional teams, that meant that we were taking people out of their own groups and uh, making them work with other people, and especially like the engineers working with the factory workers, and really having to come to understand that these people do this work all day, and they're experts, and they're smart. Just because they don't have the same degree as you, you still have to look at what they bring to the table. And that was not easy, that whole thing about I'm the expert, I know everything, to turn around and to look at people and to appreciate them and to value what they bring, whoever they are. And and that, not just cross-functional within the company, but we had a factory in Taiwan, we we brought one up in Thailand. So that meant cross-cultural communication. And just because people don't speak English as their first language doesn't mean they're stupid. Amen. (laughs) Right. That was, I think, one of the most critical things that took us over into, um, you know, that that really being able to see people and honor them and to in order to work together to bring the best out of all of us. Um, that's what made the difference. Oh, I, that's fantastic. And I've never heard anybody articulate that before, but I think that really is lurking if somewhere in the kind of unspoken consciousness of folks. It's like, they don't sound smart, therefore they're not smart. But right. It's- well, it's, they call an unconscious bias. And, and, you know, and it's everywhere. So I do a lot of work with Maersk, you know, the Danish shipping company. Mm-hmm. And, um, the head of diversity there tells the story about uh, there was these three guys that needed to hire someone into their team, and they were all Danish. And one guy says right in front of the diversity manager, well, I don't know if we should hire this guy because he's French, which means we're all going to have to speak English. Oh. So they weren't going to hire the best candidate just because it was going to inconvenience them to have to speak the same language, you know, and she, she just looked at them and said, do you know what you just said? And that's the thing is that we, we have these thoughts, we take these actions and don't stop and think, you know, and we can do that for each other just by saying, do you realize what you just said? You know, so we help each other see those unconscious biases. Oh, fantastic. And that's a great segue. Into, you said, you asked the question, do you realize what you've just said? Mm-hmm. And, and your book, The Discomfort Zone, has a lot of content in there associated with asking the questions, as you put it, that short circuit defense patterns. Right. How, now, mm-hmm. how do we do that? Or what are some, some killer questions that are great for that purpose? <laughs> well, one of my favorite questions is just, how do you know that to be true? All right. You know, that just stops people like, huh? You know, because we just say things that we've heard or we've been thinking for years without really stopping. You know, but the point in, in the book, The Discomfort Zone, the main point is, is that when you're struggling with someone who's stuck or they're just not seeing, you know, the bigger picture, that you just can't tell them, you know, you have to do this or you have to see it this way. You have to stop and listen to their story. You have to see what they see first. And somewhere in there, and when they're telling you this, 
and you stay really curious and ask them questions, you're going to see their block. You're going to see what's stopping them from seeing what else they can do. And that's when you ask about that. You know, like, for example, just an example that happened to me. You know, I was talking to my boss and complaining about my peers and, you know, my whole team. And nobody works that hard, not as hard as me. And (laughs) they just don't get it. You know, that constant thing that we often do. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he says, wow, you know, I can see that, you know, that you're really upset with them and that you're really even disappointed. And I'm wondering, um, is that it? Does everybody always disappoint you? And Whoa. that made me stop. <laughs> That's heavy. Then he said the killer question. He said, will anyone ever be good enough for you? Okay. And I was like, oh, my. And I realized how many times I just sit in judgment just by those two questions, you know? So again, he could have told me, Oh, stop it. Stop judging people. And that would have had no effect, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, but by asking me the question that made me stop and look at myself, it changed my mind and it actually changed my behavior forever. And, And that's what the discomfort zone is about. How do you listen for what it is you need to ask to change someone's mind? Tell us, how do you listen? What are some key (laughs) things to tune in for, to be on the lookout for? Yeah. Well, you know, part of it is that um, you still have to go in believing in the person and you have to check your emotions because you have to go in with an open mind and caring about this person that's sitting in front of you. Otherwise, you're not going to be with them well enough. You're just going to listen for, you know, what you can criticize them for. Okay. But if you're honestly there to help this person to get better, to achieve, you're creating this open space where you're both will be able to dig a little deeper into the situation. So you really have to check yourself first. So there's a number of things in the book that talk about how to create the mental space that opens you up and makes them feel comfortable. Once they're comfortable, then they're almost like, you know, they're willing to answer your questions They'll think your questions are because you care, not because it's an interrogation. <laughs> and then you just start asking them, um, you know, so tell me the way you see it. What do you think is going on? You know, you really need, again, to see their story. But then you have to notice the emotional shifts. So like today I had a client and he was talking about a part of his job that he absolutely loved. And then what didn't work. And I said, you know, you have so much passion for this part of your job. But then you were talking about this part, which is a critical element of your job, and your energy just went away. You know, and I said, how many years do you think you could spend trying to balance this work where you really um, hate half of it? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and he actually came up with an answer, you know, probably only a couple more years (laughs) (laughs) at that. So by noticing his emotional shifts, You know, that's the most powerful thing when I notice, like my boss noticing my disappointment, when I notice when people are passionate or irritated or sad because they feel betrayed, you know, by the company. And I'm just curious. I just ask about that. So I noticed um, that, you you know, that you're a little resentful. Tell me about that. And it's amazing when people start bringing that up, we get to the truth of what's really bothering them and stopping them from moving forward. Once they start to see the truth for themselves, 
I don't have to tell them what to do. They clearly know. You know, like when I said that to the, to my client this morning, he's like, okay, a couple years, so okay. So what do you need to do now to prepare yourself for possibly, you know, shifting your career in a couple of years? And he decides, I don't have to tell him. And that's the beauty of, you know, using the techniques in the discomfort zone. Of, you know, it's a coaching approach where it's inquiry-based and reflection. You know, I just tell people what I see and what I sense. It helps them stop and think for themselves. And as human beings, we have busy, 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 busy minds, and we don't stop and think. And anyone that allows us just to stop and to reflect and think is doing us a great favor. Oh, it's, that's so great. I've, <laughs> as I visualize those scenes in which you're asking those questions, I could imagine if I were on the receiving end of those questions, I, I think that my, my first response would be like, uh, it's almost like, you caught me. <laughs> and that's like, why it's called the discomfort. <laughs> it's not my discomfort, it's yours. <laughs> and I got to know that when I make you uncomfortable, that's a good thing. <laughs> So so I want to kind of backtrack just a little bit then. You, you mentioned that it's important that you kind of have establish a space environment of, of comfort and, and trust and such up front. And I imagine, you know, in many ways that's done, you know, weeks, months, years before the conversations are happening. And in terms of just the overall way you've treated and engaged and interact with that person and the quality of that relationship. But I'd also imagine that there are maybe some some tactical things that you'd want to do sort of in the hours and days or even moment of the conversation. And what are some of those things? Well, uh, well, first, Pete, I want to say that, you know, people think like, oh, it takes forever to build trust. And, and I don't think so, you know, again, because, you know, that's part of what I do is, is when I coach people is that I build that trust pretty quickly. But again, it's an intention. It's a conscious intention that we have to create to remember, you know, three things. One, when I'm with someone, I I need to be interested in them and their goals and what they want. It's not just about me, my KPIs, my goals, my problems. It's like, who is this person? What are their dreams? What are their desires? Um, What is it they want they're not getting? You know, and so it's like really starting to think that through before you go, But then to stop yourself and say, can I stay with this person in a positive space? Am I angry with them? Am I disappointed? Am I irritated? Can I shift to being hopeful, to being, you know, caring, compassionate, and confident? Curious even. I'm just curious about what's going on with you. It's like when I come in with that, it's amazing what curiosity will do. I mean, real genuine curiosity matched with I care about you. How much that, you know, how far that goes in building trust if it's genuine. You know, I was, this woman sent me this article just last week. I was teaching a class and she told me about it, about this thing called radical candor. Oh, yes. Yeah. And she's, but the, but the whole thing about radical candor is that you can't have that unless you care about the person. You know, otherwise um, they won't trust you. But just like a radical know. jerk. If, if you don't care, it's just being a radical jerk. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But if they know you do. And that's the problem is that, um, you know, for years, you know, we don't even talk about that. For years, I taught leadership classes and there really wasn't anything about, you know, you have to really care about the person and open up your heart and your gut. It's like, you know, we can't talk about that. But, but that's the truth. 
This is business. That's too touchy-feely, Marcia. (laughs) And I've always been accused of that. And yet, the leaders that do it always come back to me and say, wow, that made the difference. Thank you. You know, so it's like, um, so when I said to you about my history, you know, I've often, people have said, so what really drove you to doing this work? And I say, oh, I fell into it and all of that. (laughs) <laughs> but in truth, I had a very, very difficult uh, young adult time. And I turned 20 in jail. <laughs> so no kidding. I can say that now, now that I'm Dr. Reynolds and I've done all these things. You know? But, you know, the interesting thing is the person who changed my life was this woman that I met there that, um, you know, I was sulking about something. And she just got in my face and said, um, you have no idea who you are. And she just mm. ran off about how smart and how, mm. how courageous I was and all these things about me that she was the first person, I think, in my life who really saw me. You know, everybody wanted me to be the straight-A student and the top athlete and all that external stuff. But nobody was really seeing me. You know, and it took that moment, and I think that was the most significant moment in my life that when you look at everything I write and everything I teach, it's about can you stop and see people and see what's really powerful in them. And if you can see that, what a difference in their life it will make. And if every leader did that, (laughs) that would be so awesome. Oh, my gosh. You have me tearing up. (laughs) Wow. Can you tell us a little bit more? She said, you have no idea who you are. And I imagine she went on and, and she, uh, she shared some things associated with who you are. What well, did you know, she, happen after that? Well, you know, well, the, the, uh, the rest of the story is the reason why we were there and I was complaining was because we were thrown into this isolation together because we had incited a riot. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, you're holding <laughs> out on us. Can we just backtrack it shortly before <laughs> prison and then go through riot into the... <laughs> <laughs> It was just this little thing. (laughs) But, you know, so I was just talking about how what a failure I was, that everything I tried to do in my life just turned bad. I mean, look where I was. And that's when she got up and she actually did get in my face, pin me against the wall and said, you don't get it, do you? You have no idea. You are smart. You're strong. And you just care about people. And when you get that in here, and she pointed to her heart, she says, you're going to get out of here. And that's how you're going to make it in this life. And that's what made the difference. And you know what? I can't tell you, Pete, how many times I work with people that when I ask them, can you list to me your greatest internal strengths? How difficult that is. Even that, it's like, well, you know, they don't want to be boastful and, and they don't know. They don't know. You know, they say, oh, I'm a good worker. I'm like, what makes you a good worker? You know, so it's like we have to claim these internal things if we're going to bring them out into the world. And again, that's what she did. And I'll never forget that because what she did say to me, you know, because I walked into that place. I said to you, I was a straight A student, top athlete. I walked out with a life to return to. You know, most of them don't have that. And she had said at a later time, you know, you're the one, we we really need to see you make it because you're the one that gives us hope. So I carry that with me, you know, and I carry that, um, that thing, that responsibility, 
<laughs> almost, you know, like she gave that to me. And I, and I do feel, you know, it's important. It's important to know that, but to always remember um, where that was, that the people that help us in our lives aren't always uh, the people we expect, that they can show up from anywhere. Oh, that's powerful. Thank you. And great. Well, I don't know. Did you stay in touch? Uh, does she aware of, of what happened? No, I mean, oh, that okay. was many, many, many years ago. <laughs> I, well, I'm just thinking that feels like a movie scene, you know, I in know. the cell, pinned against the wall, dramatic <laughs> words of truth, washing. I mean, it just sounds like, and then, you know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I you know, what? Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to say it was I walked out and life was easy. It took me a while to get everything together. And, you know, by the time I did. But I did have to say that, you know, I walked out of there and three years later graduated summa cum laude from Arizona State. But I had to really focus my life. So I kind of like, you know, didn't think about all that for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, so by the time that I started saying, hey, this story is important to share with people, I lost track. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, so you said something earlier about shifting to curiosity. And if yeah. you're, you're possible to be a, a hopeful, positive presence for someone and shifting to curiosity. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in your other book, Outsmart Your Brain, yeah. that's one of the things you, you teach there is how you can shift your emotional states at will. Yes. That sounds powerful. Do tell. Uh, how does one do that? <laughs> Well, you know, first, just to say what you just said, Pete, the um, how do you shift it? You have to want to first. You know, so many times we, you know, we make decisions with our emotions and then we justify them with our logic. So I get mad and I say, I have a right to be mad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so first, you have to stop and say, I want to shift. I want to make this shift. Um, because if you don't do that, you know, you're just going to get stuck in the state you're in and find some good reason for it. But then um, the technique that's taught in Outsmart Your Brain was actually um, developed. I was working with a sports psychologist, and we had been asked to define how top athletes get into the zone. And I actually went out and interviewed quite a few professional athletes and asked them, in that clutch moment, what do you do? And um, there was consistent across the board in many different sports um, particular things. And the first thing is always to start with the body, not the mind. You know, start so with we the always body. say, I have to change my thoughts. But if you don't release the tension in your body first, you're not going to be able to sustain a clear mind and to make the shift. So you <sighs> breathe. Okay. Breathe. Do a quick body scan. Release the tension in your neck and your legs. You know, you can do this in just a couple seconds. And then they said, which I thought was so powerful, they said, we clear our minds. We don't do that, you know, that positive self-talk thing where it's like, I'm a winner. They said, if you think about winning, you're going to entertain the thought of losing. Okay. And so it was like you clear your mind and you drop your awareness into your center. So your center is the spot just below your navel. And in many martial arts, you know, they teach centering and your chi and your ki and, and your point of strength is in the center of your body. And they all said that, you know, that's how we clear our mind is we drop our awareness to the center because you're really strong when your awareness is centralized. Hmm. And then it was the golfers that said, they called it a swing thought. They said one thought, 
you go back to the one thing you want to think about and you anchor on that. So if it's keep your head down or, you know, arms back, whatever it is, one thought. What I then say is choose one emotion. Okay. So you want to stay calm. You want to be courageous. Uh, you uh, want to be confident, compassionate. Maybe you want to be angry, but choose it. <laughs> <laughs> and you just, you know, every time you start to lose it, you go back and choose it again. You take that breath, relax your body, clear your mind, center yourself, and think of that one word. And so are you, you're choosing that emotion based upon, you know, what you think is most critical in this particular moment or what you're most kind of afraid of you'll fail to show or kind of either <laughs> system? Well, I like to choose the emotion before I even go into the right. conversation. So, um, you know, it's the key word. So I do think what's essential for me in this conversation, do I want to be strong and show confidence? Um, or is it that I need to be calm and patient? Um, you know, what would be the most important motion for me in the conversation I'm about to have? Um, you know, you, of course, you can always flip it to something else. If something else happens, it's just a little harder to do that. So I, I say pick a word and stick with it. And then you have to feel it. You don't just say to yourself, I'm confident. You have to actually feel it. <laughs> well, and so, and, and, yeah. And, and I, as I kind of cruise through these steps, you know, first, I, I have an intention and will to make this shift. Secondly, I'm, I'm starting with my body and, and my breath. Third, I'm clearing my mind and, and going to center. Fourth, I am zeroing in on the one emotion. Mm -hmm. And so when you say you have to feel it, I mean... Mm -hmm. Do I just automatically feel it if I've done all the first four things and I'm focused in on it? Or kind of how does one manifest or bring that forth? Um, generally, if you've done the first steps, uh, if you say to yourself, I'm curious, <sighs> you know, and really inhale it, um, you probably will feel it because you've got, you've cleared yourself. Um, but in, in discomfort zone, I talk a lot about, you know, when we listen to people with our entire nervous system, there's three organs in your nervous system that receive information and process and create ideas and have memories. And those three organs are your head, heart, and gut. And so if you're wanting to show care about this person, that you have to really feel it in your heart. And again, I know that comes back and feels like touchy-feely, but honestly... If you can recall someone in your life that you're just so grateful that they're in your life, where do you feel that? Yes. It's so my heart mm -hmm. it's and, and I guess I'm I'm thinking you mean heart as in the literal physical blood pumping organ as <laughs> as opposed to like my spirit or the my center of self. Just to be clear. I'm really talking about that blood okay. pumping organ. <laughs> You know, because that's where heart, that's where you do feel, you know, care, compassion, gratitude, but courage, you feel in your gut. You know, okay. you always say, I you know, have the guts to do that. So when I'm working with clients and they want to have courage, I have them breathe in the word courage and have feel it actually in their gut. You know, All because right. that's where you feel that mm, mm, I can do this. I can do this. So it's not in your head. Yeah. And I suppose if I, if I wanted to feel um, wisdom or insight or clarity, I would focus on my head. Right. So there, yeah, curious is often in the head. But again, it's that curious open mind. There's a feeling to that as well. I'm curious.
Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it, I would say play with these and, you know, say the words and see if you can feel them. In Outsmart Your Brain, and on my website, outsmartyourbrain.com, I have a free inventory, so you don't have to, you know, go to the book. It's actually on the website. But it says, you know, you should stop throughout the day, like two, you know, two, three times a day, um, and you can set an alarm on your phone and just ask yourself, what am I feeling and why? And start noticing what you're feeling, because most of us are what we call neck-ups. We don't pay attention to our feelings. Mm-hmm. And so if you start to notice, and where are you feeling that, um, it's going to start creating an awareness of the occurrence of emotion in your body, which uh, it, most, you know, most of the emotions we feel during the day are happening somewhere in, within your, your body. And so when you start to notice that, it also gives you the ability to start learning how to feel it when you just say the word to yourself. Uh, So it's a two-way thing. So if you practice with starting with your own awareness, what am I feeling? Where am I feeling it? Why? Um, You start to be able to be uh, more in control of your emotions as a human emotional being. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... We are, we should ought to pay attention to it. Otherwise, we become victims to our emotions. This way you learn how to master your emotions. Oh, I like the sound of that. Mastery. Well, boy, I feel like we could talk at length, at length, and, and maybe maybe a follow-up interview is necessary some months to come. Uh, but I, before we uh, shift gears, just to be sensitive to time, to the, the final segment, the, the Fast Faves, uh, is there anything else that you want to make sure we get out there? Well, you know, actually my favorite saying um, from Discomfort Zone is, you know, people want you to be present more than they need you to be perfect. Oh, that sounds retweetable. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> That's good. Love it. Thank you. And could you share any other favorite quotes that you uh, find inspiration from again and again? Um. Well, I have one on my wall <laughs> that says, when I dare to, uh, to, to be powerful, um, to act in the service of my vision, then it's no longer important that which I'm afraid. All right. Who said that? Audre Lorde was her name. Oh, that's great. And I have one more. All right, let's take it. Gosh, he's blanking me who said it. <laughs> but he said... I have too many more lives to live than to spend any more time in that one. (laughs) And I love that because it just says, you know what? It's always open to move on. You know, you don't have to ever stay stuck. Yeah. Great. And, And how about maybe a favorite study or an experiment or piece of research that you find referencing again and again? Oh, you know, I, I often talk about, you know, being, present with people outside of your head. And um, uh, it's really creativity. So there's a piece of research where they mapped the brain of rappers. Okay. And they found that at the beginning of the rap, um, their their cognitive brain was very active. So, you know, they started, they were intentional uh, with the start of the rap. And then as they got into it, their cognitive brain goes completely silent. And mm. there's these sparks in the middle brain, just sparks coming up, you know, and they just, they just go with what comes up. And then when they go to close it, um, the cognitive brain comes back online. 
And I always tell when I work with leaders that, you know, it's the same thing when you're in conversation with people, quit rehearsing in your brain what you're going to say next. Just be present with them and trust what comes up, you know, because it's going to be amazing and it doesn't have to be perfect and they'll tell you, but it'll move the conversation forward. So I love that study with the brains of rappers. <laughs> I guess so that's why they call them flows. Yeah. They're just kind of rolling with it. That's And it's the same thing. I recently read a similar thing on um, jazz musicians. It's just, you're right. It's flow. So can you be in flow when you're conversa- in conversation with people? Why not? That's an exciting thought. Can you share with us a favorite book of yours? Um, it's always uh, whatever book I'm reading at the moment. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, actually, there is a book that I use a lot in my training. It's very, very old, and it's called I and Thou. And it's really all about um, when we're talking to people, it's, you know, getting out of our ego, self, I, and and being with the person as if they were special. You know, and what would you see? So that wrapped with the Zen mind, beginner's mind. Can I have a beginner's mind um, in any conversation and quit knowing everything and how people would be? Can I just be present and say, today's the day, everything's going to be different and see what shows up. All right. And and how about a favorite website or online resource? Oh, Um, you know, I like the HeartMath Institute. I've Um, heard of that. Yeah, there's a lot of, and they just um, came out with a book called Heart Intelligence, but they do a lot of research on what's actually going in that that heart pumping, uh-huh. blood pumping organ. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that has a lot to do with how we connect with people and, and um, make choices in life. <laughs> and, and how about a, a favorite habit for you, uh, something that you've adopted as a personal practice that's been really transformational? Oh, well, you know, I um, was born in Arizona. I still live here. And one of the reasons is because, like, as we're talking, I'm looking out on a mountain. And um, I know that whenever I start to get real wrapped up in something and my emotions start to go crazy, I put on my hiking boots and I go out on the mountain. And I have my feet touch the ground. And that just centers me. So, um I, I just know that even when I'm traveling, you know, go outside, go for a walk. Um, you've got to bring yourself back to present and center in order to do your best work. Great. And, and how about a favorite uh, tool, whether that's a, a gadget or software or hardware or thought framework that you use often? <laughs> it's funny when <laughs> the first thing that came to mind was I have this great jar opener. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Tell us about it. <laughs> I don't know. It's just this weird contraption thing that's, you know, kind of round up on top that, you know, they, that uh, you can clamp and fit on any jar and it just opens it up. And, you know, I'm not a big woman. And so um, I do work out. But you know what? It's crazy, isn't it? How they make things so difficult to open. Oh, that's so, fun. Do we know who makes the jar opener? I'm no. Tr- <laughs> tell you where i've been hauling it around for years <laughs> it's great contraption <laughs> well, well how about any uh favorite uh, time-saving tricks or approaches that you use to to get many things done you know the greatest thing that's running our lives is email mm-hmm. and so you know the whole thing about you know don't do email all day long 
I find that when I have a ton of email, it bothers me at first, but then it's easier to get through when there's a lot than to try to go back and do drips and drabs right. all day. And I have this thing called the Sane Box. All right. And you know it? Uh, I know that Ramit Sethi was advocating for the Sane Box. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. No, I love it. I love it. You know, it separates my mail into, you know, saying later the stuff that comes in and I can decide if I want to keep it or not. And, and, and things that I never want to see again, I stick in the same black hole and it just immediately goes to my trash. And it's not a spam filter, um, but it just, you know, um, when I travel and I'm in a hurry and I want to just read the most important things, it's, it sorts that out. It takes about a month or so to train it. Um, uh, but you know, once you train it, at least I like, if I'm on the run, I can get to the most important things and then I can look at the same later box later and just quickly determine are any of these emails important and I trash the rest. So I like that. Great. How about uh, a favorite role model or someone that you, you look up to and admire and why? <laughs> I know there are leaders out there, but it was always my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she was even smaller than me. I'm barely five foot. Oh. <laughs> so just to put that in perspective, and she was shorter than me, but she was just tough. You know, it's like um, she escaped um, during the Bolshevik Revolution when she was like 15 years old and, you know, raised this family. Her husband was sick and she, they, she raised five boys pretty much on her own. She got a job. She became a manager right away. And I think she's the one that instilled in me that... Um, there's always a way and you don't have to be perfect and know everything. You just step in and do it. Um, and I think I just learned that from her. Oh, beautiful. Thank you for sharing. And a uh, favorite way to find you. If folks want to learn more about you, would you prefer that they uh, go to a particular website or, or Twitter or email? Um, outsmartyourbrain.com is my website, Okay. you know, and um, I'm Marsha at outsmartyourbrain.com. But yeah, check out the website because there's lots and lots of things, um, free things on there, um, assessments and a quiz and stuff on emotional triggers. If you Google emotional trigger, I got number one. <laughs> oh, well done. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So yeah, I would say go to the website and then uh, from there, if you have questions, you know, can email me. I am on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, you know, all those things. Certainly. Uh, yeah. And do you have a, a favorite challenge or a final call to action that you'd like to leave listeners with? To remember that it it's really not all about you. All right. <laughs> yeah. That'll do it. Well, Marcia, thank you so much. This was a, a delight and, and so much fun. I really appreciate you sharing your, your time and your insights. And it's been very enriching for me and hopefully everyone listening. Yeah, thank you. This was fun. I really appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation here and you're ready to put some of those good pieces into practice. And if you'd like some extra resources to help you along the way, of course, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep14, which includes the transcript and show notes and items linked and ways to get in touch with Dr. Marsha Reynolds if you so choose. Thanks and looking forward to next time. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.